The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from the book of Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked them, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And now verses 14 through 23. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For, for what from in, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensually, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Thomas, for doing that twice today. Uh, join uh, Pastor Todd in welcoming uh, all of our scouts, the Cubs, the girls, the boys, uh, all the troops, and uh, grateful that you're, you're here with us. Uh, this is Scout Sunday, if you missed Todd's uh, initial uh, opening remarks today. Uh, very, very active, robust scout communities that operate off of our campus, and many in our church are also part of that. Uh, along with uh, people from three counties and 15 different schools, I'm told. So great to have you all. We are, we are currently in uh, a series on the book of Mark. We're calling it Jesus, and today we're going to uh, look at Jesus, our substitute. Uh, but first I will uh, start with an embarrassing anecdote about uh, my dating life with, uh, with my former girlfriend, who is now my wife, Patty. And uh, basically, I really wanted to impress her. I just liked her so much. And so I thought that, you know, every time I see her, every time we go on a date, I should smell good. And so I took cologne, which I didn't know really how to use. Nobody ever taught me how you're supposed to use it or how much you're supposed to apply. So I just said, you know, three sprays on the right cheek, three sprays on the left cheek, then rub it in on my hair and on my arms. That ought to do it, right? Well, it only took a few dates uh, for her to gain the courage to say, you're trying too hard and it's overwhelming. 
Uh, and uh, over the years, uh, I've actually learned that, that, that Patty does like cologne. Do you want to tell your side of this or you want to just like, okay. So, so Patty does like it when I do one spray in the air and then walk through it. That's all you need. Uh, and so I do that sometimes, especially when we're going to be together. Uh, but over the years, I've also discovered that what really attracts her the most is not so much how I smell, even though that's an important thing, uh, as much as interior things like integrity, kindness, curiosity, words of affirmation, things like that. So what we've got in front of us is a group of people trying to perfume themselves. Uh, and they're called the scribes and the Pharisees, and they've essentially made a career out of addressing the outside without attending at all, really, to the inside. And they have an elaborate list by this time of social behaviors that they have depended upon to determine who's in and who's out. They used this list of social behaviors as a bit of a yardstick to affirm themselves and also to pass judgment on other people so that they could feel morally superior. And they're at it again. They turn to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we've noticed. Your disciples, they don't wash their hands before they eat. And this isn't the only time that the scribes and Pharisees have expressed this concern. There's also a place in Luke chapter 11 where it says that they are appalled that Jesus didn't wash his hands before he ate a meal. Now there's no biblical command about washing your hands before a meal any more than there's a biblical command about praying before a meal or about doing any number of things that we do as traditions. And they, 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 they ask the question boldly, why don't your disciples follow the traditions of the elders? Now, before I go further, I, I want to acknowledge that we're in a season of legitimate, obsessive hand-washing. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. We are doing our best to avoid ingesting biological contaminants. That wasn't the issue here. The issue here was the Pharisees and scribes are thinking that if you broke the code, if you broke the social rules, you became morally contaminated. Many of these rules they'd elevated to the same level as scriptures, the tradition of the elders. And Jesus says, oh, the moral contaminant, that's already inside of you. And you can do nothing about it. From within, Jesus says, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. What's on the inside of you is what defiles you. Not your external behavior, not your perfume or lack thereof, but what's on the inside of you, that's what's putrid, that's what, what's vulgar, that's what's vile, that's what's gross. He said it in Matthew 23 as well. Woe to you. Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you actors, you posers. You clean up on the outside, but on the inside of you, you are full of greed and self-indulgence. This is going to be fun, you guys. 25 more minutes. Hang on with me. How serious is this? 
How do we compensate for it? And can we heal from it? How serious is this? It, it's serious. Sin is a serious thing for a lot of reasons, one of which is it's an inescapable problem that everybody has. Everybody. And the Bible is so kind to us because it, it gives us examples of what you could call a humble hypocrite. People who are at the peak of their moral virtue and yet who acknowledge even at the peak of their moral virtue there's a corruption that dwells in them that they themselves are powerless to do anything about. It sounds a good bit like an Alcoholics Anonymous testimony. I'm out of control, I've lost power, or I've lost, I've lost control of my life, I don't have power over my own problems. I need help outside of myself in the context of a safe community and a power greater than myself. How bad is it? Isaiah, the great prophet of Israel, doesn't say I used to be, I once was, every now and then I can be. He says I am a man of unclean lips. Peter, one of the apostles of Jesus, after hearing Jesus teach, says, go away from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, not wretched man that I was, wretched man that I am. The end of his life, at the peak of his goodness and virtue and ministry fruitfulness, Paul says to his young protege, Timothy, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. Oh, but he doesn't stop there. I am still the chief of sinners. Moses, back at the beginning, Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. It's a pile on. David, the man after God's own heart, after whom Jesus named himself the son of David, described the condition of the human heart as he saw it as an inmost self filled with destruction, throats that are like an open grave. And then Paul in Romans 3 quotes the same psalm. That's the fifth psalm. Their throats are an open grave. There's no one righteous, no one good, not even one. It's as if both David and Paul are saying, if Jesus the physician told us to open up and say, ah, what he would see is death. What he would smell is the stench of rigor mortis. You encouraged yet? It gets worse. We can't get rid of it. You Shakespeare fans, you'll, you'll, you'll relate to this one, right, where Lady Macbeth has this imaginary vision of a blood stain. And, and, and she's, she's saying, out, 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 damn spot, out, out, out. And, and, and she can't get rid of it. It won't go away. And that spot, that blood spot, is an illustration of her troubled conscience because of the way that her self, selfish ambition had led her to treat other people in horrid ways. 
W.H. Auden, the poet, said, sin is bread to the bone. Dostoevsky said, there has never been a decent man anywhere. These are smart people. These are, you know, these are people that they read in the Ivy League universities. These are smart people. They're not backwoods, they're not arcane and archaic. They're highly intelligent and honest. Just like Thomas Nagel, the atheist philosopher, not only can we not get rid of this problem, we can't bear it. We can't bear it. Nagel said this, he's very candid about his own fear of religion and his fear of the idea of God. He says, I want my atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope that my belief is right. I hope there is no God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not, is not rare. Notice, as, as, a, as an intellectual, as a scholar, as an academic, he did not say, I guess that all of my intellectual reasons to reject religion are shared by many, many people. No, he's more honest than that. He's more honest than that. He says, I guess my cosmic authority problem is shared by many people. Nagel taps in to something that we all realize and that is that the cosmic authority problem is, is woven within the fabric of who we are as human beings. We know deep down that to err is not human. You want to know why you get so defensive when somebody critiques you even for the smallest little thing? Because you do not believe that to err is human. Do you know why you attack people in the same way that Adam and Eve attacked one another in the garden and, 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 and Cain attacked Abel? Because you do not believe that to err is human. You've never believed it. You are made in the image of God. Thomas Nagel is created in the image of God. W.H. Auden and Dostoevsky and Shakespeare, made in the image of God. And because of that, we cannot bear our own imperfection. We can't bear the imperfection that we find in others. We want atheism to be true. And the only alternatives without God in the picture are the Adam and Eve alternative, hide, cover up, attack, or denial and addiction, which I'll get to in a minute. But let's just think about how deep this issue is. Remember, Jesus says sin resides in the heart. It comes from within you. That's where its source is. It, sin doesn't happen to you. It's done by you because of what's in you. Sermon on the Mount, you say, oh, I've, I've never been unfaithful. Oh, yeah? Have you ever lusted for somebody you're not married to? You have committed adultery. Well, I've never never murdered anybody at least well oh yeah have, have you ever hated somebody in your heart because if you have you, you've murdered them as far as God is concerned and we say oh for crying out loud that's just too much cosmic authority problem see you want to edit and revise Jesus instead of yielding to Jesus and have him edit and revise you you've got it all backwards 
It's like Voltaire said, you know, in, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and we've been trying to return the favor ever since. So one of the things in our marriage that we've worked through over the years is uh, just like we'll have to work through the fact that I didn't ask you if I could share this today uh, later this afternoon, but I felt it just feels so right. Patty, when we leave, half the time she wants to go back into the house to check the oven. So we're in the car. Oh, please go back, go back, go back. And I've made fun of you, I gotta, or me, I've got to make fun of you. So, so, so we go back and... Check the oven, and the oven, we've nev- the oven has never been on in 26 years of marriage, and yet we've gone back and checked it, I don't know how many hundreds of times. But here's, here's, here's where she's coming from. This is us. Have you guys seen This Is Us? All it takes is one little appliance and a spark from one little appliance. You think, oh, it's just one little appliance. It's just one little spark. That one little spark took the house down and killed Dad. That one little spark. We are running from one little parasite called COVID-19. I don't want to get even one little parasite in my system, even though I can't see it with my naked eye. It's so small, but it's not insignificant. It has killed half a million Americans alone in less than a year. And we think that our sin is small. There's no such thing as small sin, no such thing. You know, if, you're a, if you work for a mortuary, if you're a coroner, you work for a funeral home, you, know, to, you come and you, you, you take the, the, the deceased body uh, and you carefully handle the deceased body and you, you bring it to the, you know, to the morgue and you, you, you put on the makeup and you, you put on the favorite clothes and the jewelry. Uh, you, know, you, you, pr- you, you prepare the body so the body can be presented to the family in, in the best way possible for the family to remember. It's an act of honor. But the truth of that whole process as well is that when an old person dies, you know, probably at that moment the body's in bad shape, the hair's disheveled, there, there's a smell, um, you know, it's just weakness. It's just the optics of, of weakness and frailty. And, and then you, you know, in the casket, it's the optics of, of beauty and, and being done up as much as possible. But though the optics are different, the nature of the corpse is the same. You can look pretty on the outside and be a dirtbag on the inside. And you can look dirty on the outside and actually be very pure on the inside. How serious is this? It's dead serious. The wages of sin is death. How do we compensate? We're so desperate that, that, that we look for alternate. We, we just keep running from God. And there are three ways that, that, that we keep running from God. One is that, that, like the Pharisees and scribes, we put our faith in religious traditions instead of the Bible and Jesus. You know, one time we're, we're, we're thanking God for a meal and one of our daughters tattles on her sister. Mom, Dad, her eyes are open. Well, First of all, how did you know her eyes are open during the prayer? And second of all, where does it say in the Bible you got to close your eyes when you pray? Where does it say in the Bible you got to pray before a meal? Doesn't say it. Doesn't say it. Doesn't mean it's a bad thing to do it. It's a helpful thing. But it's the tradition of the elders. Once we had a church visitor in a in a former church, came in, 
Nobody knew him. He reeked of nicotine, cussed in his conversations with church members, was wearing jorts. You remember jorts? This was 10 years after jorts went out of style and a a ratty t-shirt. Then this other guy in the middle of the singing comes up, taps me on the shoulder. He's wearing his, you know, perfectly ironed suit. He's carrying his Bible. He's wearing his cologne and expressing his putrid heart. You see that guy over there? Cusses like a sailor, reeks of nicotine, dressed like that. How irreverent can you be in the house of God? He's he's a distraction to my worship. I think I'm going to talk to him afterwards. I said, no, please no. Let me go find a recovering addict. I'll have a recovering addict go talk to him because you don't know your head from your rear end right now. You really don't. This church visitor also had needle streaks on his arms. Turned out that he was one month sober from a lifelong heroin addict. And the recovery people said, find some religion somewhere because the statistics are better for recovery if you find some religion somewhere. And he showed up at our church trying to get the spot off of his soul. And I leave church that day and I'm thinking, what? When you exchange a heroin addiction for a nicotine addiction, is that irreverence or is that progress? Is that infidelity to true and pure worship or is that a sign of holiness and something sacred? I I think it's the latter. I know it's the latter. I'm going to preach at you right now. It's the latter. Don't get to preaching. Don't get to meddling. I'm meddling. It's the latter. Don't bring your putrid, judgy, self-righteous heart in here. It's offensive. It's hurtful. Aren't there clean laws in the Bible, though? Yes, there are. The law of Moses in the Bible, inspired by God, said... If you touched a dead body or mildew, if you had skin disease or discharge of blood or pus, if you ate food from animals that were designated unclean, like a pig, you were considered ritually tarnished, you were considered unclean and unfit for worship. And in comes Jesus here, verse 19, and what does it say? He declared all foods clean. Wait a minute. Is he getting all Thomas Jefferson on us, taking scissors and cutting out of his Bible the things that don't suit him? Is there something else going on? N.T. Wright explains what's going on. He says this. Here's what the clean laws under Moses were for. The poisoned wells of human motivation are the real problem to which the purity laws point. In other words, the purity laws are given to us or were given to Israel to show Israel in as explicit way as possible, you cannot keep this. You cannot fix this. You cannot make yourself clean. Good luck with all of these rules. Good luck. The real solution is also what the laws point to and that's the only one who did keep them all, and who did keep spotless and clean, who never had a spot 
that he was trying to get off of himself. It's Christ himself. We don't need the clean laws anymore because Jesus has fulfilled them. How many of you have ever lived on a budget, bought cheap furniture that you've had to put together yourself? Okay, come on. I know we're like on the edge of Brentwood and everything, but I know that most of you have been on a budget before. Todd and I have, right? Go to Ikea, buy a cheap piece of furniture. What do you do? If you're smart, you take out the directions. What does it have? A picture of the end product. And then you, you put it together. You've got your table. Then what do you do with the picture? Do you keep it? No, you throw it away. You don't need it anymore. Clean laws, reality. That's what's going on here. Why trade the real thing in for a sketch? So that's the first problem. Faith in religious traditions that aren't commanded or commanded anymore from the Bible. And then the other one is faith in ourselves. This is when, you know, we, we this is kind of the Thomas Nagel approach. You know, we, we, we embrace atheism. We put our faith in science. We put our faith in human reason. And science and reason are great things. And the scientists and, and intellects and scholars and Vanderbilt professors here would say that their science and their faith complement each other. They, they, they wouldn't say that they contradict. But there are those who would say that I, I have to choose one or the other. So I'm cho choosing science and human reason just like the Enlightenment people did. We've invented the car, we've put a man on the moon, our human potential is limitless. And based on that belief that human potential is limitless to fix things, there have been three humanist manifestos written by secular academics, scientists, philosophers, and ethicists. One in 1933, one in 1973, one in 2003. Each and every one of them, they promised the same thing. It was like the same manifesto was recycled three times. The promise was we're going to control the climate. How's that working out? We're going to cure all diseases. How's that working out? And here's the big promise. We're going to fix ourselves. There'll be no more war. There'll be no more crime. There'll be no more racism or political strife. How's that working out? You know, after the first manifesto, World War II happened, and the Holocaust happened. And Lord David Cecil, one of the leading intellects, wrote this. The philosophy of progress has led us to believe that the savage and primitive was behind us, but it turns out that it was within us. Or a more contemporary version, the Muscle Shoals, Alabama, banned the drive-by truckers. It's from their song, What It Means. Astrophysics at our fingertips, and we're standing at the summit, and some man with a joystick lands a rocket on a comet. We're living in an age where limitations are forgotten. The outer edges move and dazzle us, but the core is something rotten. And the rest of the verses, hailing from Muscle Shoals, Alabama, are about the problem of racism. The third way that we compensate is by escape. Aldous Huxley, who was an enthusiastic signer of the manifestos, would later say, maybe this world is another planet's hell. 
And on his deathbed, as he was perishing from cancer, he whispers over to his wife, pen and paper, please. She gives him pen and paper, and he, and he writes it down, 100 milligrams LSD. We have other escape mechanisms. Excessive eating, excessive dieting, excessive work, excessive shopping, porn, politics, football. Take your pick. Anything to distract us from the cosmic authority problem. Can we heal from this? It requires a refocus. First, we have to get honest. We have to be a certain kind of hypocrite instead of pretending that we're not hypocrites. Here's the thing about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy does not negate Christianity. Hypocrisy establishes Christianity. You can't be a Christian without acknowledging that you're a hypocrite. Our first membership vow, do you acknowledge yourself now to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope except through his sovereign mercy? Do you? Yes. And then we get to the Jesus question. The only hope and savior for sinners. Yes. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Jesus isn't looking for non-hypocrites. He's the only non-hypocrite. He's looking for humble hypocrites. It's the arrogant church guy hypocrites that are driving saved junkies out of the churches because they want their reverence. They want control. They don't want to be around them. They don't want the stench of nicotine or the sight of needle streaks not realizing that the stench of rigor mortis is on their hearts and, and the streaks of addiction are all over their insides. The answer to Romans 7, where Paul says, wretched man that I am, is Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from his love. The answer to rescue me from, who will rescue me from this body of death is everything Jesus came to do. If you get rid of the word wretched, you will lose the word amazing. When sin ceases to be wretched, grace ceases to be amazing. That is why religious moralists watch the clock irritated during church and communion. And that is why grateful sinners don't want it to end. That's why. The second invitation and the path to healing is to come to the table. And what's on the table? Remnants of a dead body and blood. Under the clean laws of Moses, if you touched a dead body, you could not walk into the sanctuary. And now you have to eat and drink one in order to belong in one. What a great reversal. You know, the, the filth of his death is actually what will make us clean. The, the, the look of Jesus on the cross, how vulgar it was, how gruesome it was, how gnarly it was, is, is again another picture 
another illustration of, of what we are on the inside. What he is on the inside is, is what he makes us on the outside when he clothes us with his righteousness and beauty so that there's no more shame or scolding that we ever have to worry about or fear from God. And then the result, when you take the, the, the contamination of what happened to Jesus into your body, your insides become uncontaminated. And you become a new creation, poised to bear fruit into the world instead of putrid speech and putrid hiding and putrid excuse making and putrid aggression. Do you want in? If you want in, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I realize this is some heavy stuff. Just important stuff. Where sin abounds, this is the promise, the grace of God abounds all the more. That's our hope. No matter how dark it gets, as Leonard Cohen says, there's a crack in everything, but that's how the light gets in. Don't lose, don't lose your awareness of wretchedness because when sin ceases to be wretched, grace ceases to be amazing. And grace is amazing. You want grace to stay amazing. So let's, let's turn our eyes and hearts to the screen.